my first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After that, he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then when He had said these things, as as they were there looking on, He was lifted up and a cloud took Him out of their sight. And while they were gazing at heaven as he went, behold, two men stood beside them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. So as we pray and we have the Selah, It's a time for us to prepare our hearts to receive that which the Holy Spirit will illuminate to us. Pray that God's word would speak. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray um, not only for those who hear, but for the one who speaks. That we would be hid in the cross of Christ and we would know Christ only. Through his name we ask his blessing. The word of God. Amen. Thy 
So as many of you know, this week um, we lost Senator McCain. Uh, no matter what your political viewpoint is, uh, certainly a man who had lived a distinguished life in the service of his country. And uh, I've been listening to many of the things over the last 48 hours that have been said about him uh, to identify him and, and a little bit of his life. Things that, that you know, even though I lived through much of the Vietnam era, I didn't really even realize that uh, some of the suffering that he had gone through in prison camp and many of the obstacles he had to overcome. But one of the things that struck me uh, was actually said by Joe Biden. Uh, and Joe said this. He said, Senator McCain, John is defined by his courage and redeemed by his loyalty. Uh, and and I, you know, those are nice words and, and great words to be said. Uh, but it caused me to think for a moment, what identifies me? And what identifies you? And what redeems me? And what redeems you? How would people say, uh, what would people say about our lives between the numbers? And what do I mean by that? So uh, you can go into any graveyard and 99% of the tombstones will have uh, three items on there, four items. They'll have the name of the person, normally something nice said about them, but three very important items. And that's the date of birth and the date of passing. But the most significant symbol on that stone is actually a very small symbol that doesn't say very much at all in terms of its verbiage, but it's the dash. It's that little connector in between date of birth and date of passing because it's that dash that speaks everything about a person's life. It's in that dash that you and I leave our mark upon the face of this earth. It's in that dash that we display to our families to our world around us, to our church, who it is that identifies us and who it is that is our Redeemer. In our words from the first chapter of Acts, Jesus says there's two identifying factors about us. One is that we are in his kingdom, that you and I are kingdom people, that we are designed to be in his kingdom. And that we are redeemed by the blood of the king. That he has ascended to his throne, and from his throne he has sealed our destiny with him forever by his blood. And in doing so, he equips you and I by the power, the promised power of the Holy Spirit to live this kingdom life in that dash and to bring meaning and purpose to us as we are identified by him in that dash. But he gives us a second promise too that he's returning, that he's coming back, and that we will come back with him and reign with him over this kingdom. 
forever and ever. Look with me at the first part of this promise, this promise of a kingdom. In verses 1 through 4, Luke writes to his first book, in his first book speaking of his gospel to Theophilus, his friend. He says, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. Interesting words that Luke presents here. Um, One is he's addressing it in detail to Theophilus and dealing with all that Jesus did in his earthly life and to teach us that there was a day coming when he would be taken up. And we have to ask the question, what was the purpose of the three years that Jesus came to live amongst us? Well, certainly the purpose, one of them, was for our redemption, that he would die for our sins, that he would cleanse us, that he would give us his righteousness. And certainly another part of that was to reveal to us the kingdom of God. You remember what he told the Pharisees? That the kingdom of God is within you. And often he would say the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near you. That you and I weren't redeemed for some ethereal, nebulous actions that someday might be revealed out there. But that the Lord has come from his throne in heaven to redeem you and I for the specific purpose of being within the kingdom of God. And living within the kingdom of God. But he also came to say that this kingdom is his kingdom. That it belongs to him. And that he's the one enthroned over it. And that because of that, the kingdom is eternal and and without end. And so we see that Luke tells Theophilus and tells you and I that he has come and he began to teach. In other words, he inaugurated his kingdom. And you and I live in the continuation right now of the very inauguration of that which he began. And yet the kingdom we understand as we live in this in-between time of our birth into Christ and the return to Christ or the return of Christ is that dash, spiritually speaking, in which you and I accomplish our mission for the kingdom of God. And he promises Theophilus in this writing that Jesus began, Jesus continues, and Jesus will come again. And he's given them a command through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them, suffering many proofs and appearing during the 40 days and speaking about what? The kingdom of God. In this promise of a kingdom, Jesus does several things. One is he seals the reality of the kingdom by his ascension into heaven. He is he promises the reality of the kingdom by his ascension into heaven. Interesting words here that are used about being taken up. You see, you and I didn't lift Jesus up. You and I don't conjure up Jesus and the way that the world would want to present that is your idea and my idea that we deified him somehow. 
The word taken up is very specific in its meaning, meaning that the Lord, the Father, took him up as an acceptable sacrifice and the acceptable king over the kingdom. That in the three years he was here, his work was completed. And he did it perfectly. And therefore the work is signed and sealed and delivered into the hands of the Father. And that God brought him up to sit him beside himself, Father and Son, to rule with all authority over heaven and earth. And then secondly, notice that he gave us instructions. The book, the scriptures are fraught with instructions on how you and I are to live. You remember the Sermon on the Mount? Right? Three chapters of how you and I are to live as believers and disciples of Jesus. When's the last time you read them? When's the last time you and I spent time meditating on that, how Jesus has caused us to live? As followers of Jesus, would it not be important for us to spend our time meditating and not just meditating but applying the word of god in our lives that you and i have been commissioned by the king himself into kingdom living with specific orders on what that kind of life looks like and that we might want to measure our lives against that which jesus has called us to be Should we really be people who go the extra mile? Should we really be people who turn the other cheek? Should we really be people who live with an ethic order that's different from the ethic order of the world? Should we really be people who are willing to lose so that Christ's name will win? Should we really be people that trust Jesus more than we trust the economy? Should we really be that kind of people, or was Jesus just mincing words? I've heard it in my 20 years of ministry. I've heard these things said to me. Sometimes our pastor is so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. Pastor... You tell me to live a certain way, and that's nice, but let's get practical. I know what Jesus tells me to do, but I don't live in that world. I want to tell you something. As a follower of Christ, as a disciple of Christ, as a subject of the kingdom, it is completely impractical to live any other way than the way that the Scriptures command you and I to live. That the most wise thing that you and I can do, the most efficient thing that you and I can do, the most loving thing, the most kind thing, the most thing like Christ we can do is to study and to meditate upon the promises of Christ, the way that he tells us to live, and to apply those truths to our life and live them out. If Christ calls us to be a hospitable people, we should be a hospitable people. If Christ calls us to be a giving people, we should be a giving people. If Christ tells us that we are identified by, one another, by the world in the way that we love one another, then we must be lovers of one another. 
You and I must live like friends of Jesus so that the world may know that our King reigns. And by living as friends of Jesus, we realize then we live as friends with one another. And as we live as friends with one another, the world sees our camaraderie, our fellowship, our unity, our love. And the world is astonished at how a people, a group of rational-minded people, could live so unselfishly with one another and follow different rules and different ways of living and yet have lives that are so filled with joy and kindness and peace in the rest of the world that the world looks at it and goes, what is up with them? And maybe the next sentence would be, I'd like to be part of them. I'd like to know who they know. I'd like to know what they know. I'd like to know why the way they respond to things is so much different than the rest of the world. Well, when you and I realize we're part of a kingdom and we've been given kingdom directions, those become our natural way of living as we submit to the authority of Christ. You see, Luke tells us and tells Theophilus, That we have, just like the apostles, we've been chosen to have a place in Christ's kingdom. Some of you are musicians. Some of you are teachers. Some of you are prayers. Some of you are just companions. Some of you are pastors. Some are elders. But we are to bring those gifts that Jesus has and bring them together for the unity of the body so that the world will know our king is the most glorious king. And each of us has been uniquely equipped with unique gifts to serve the king within his body. And of course, Paul and Corinthians would unveil this even further by saying the foot can't say to the hand, you're not needed. Right? But in likewise, the hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you either. But where it goes a step further is this, that the foot can't even say to itself, I'm not needed. The you and I, as we sit here today, we can't have this humble, hairy attitude that says, oh, the Lord hasn't given me much. I'm just one who sits in the pew and just, you know, I'm just lucky to get into the kingdom of heaven by the skin of my teeth. Nothing could be more insulting to the power of the cross than that statement. That the Lord who ascended into heaven and sits upon his throne, who has equipped and indwelled you and I with the Holy Spirit, would make us only sufferers that get in by the skin of our teeth and not by the glorious blood of Christ to sit with him and reign over his kingdom forever and forever. Each of you and myself have specific callings within the body of Christ for the specific purpose of serving the king. Not one follower of Christ is exempt from that calling. And to do so is to deny the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. You have a position in the kingdom because you have a promise of a kingdom. And not only do you and I have a promise of a kingdom, but we also have the promise of God's sovereign reign over that kingdom. In verses 5 and 8, John baptized you with water. 
but I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And, of course, you and I can look forward into the second chapter of Acts to the day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit was no longer given through the priest to people who specifically might have a prophecy or a word of God, but the Holy Spirit would come down upon God's people like tongues of fire and indwell you and I. As Paul would say in Ephesians, with the very power that resurrected Christ from the dead is the very power that lives within you and I. You and I are not just mere human beings, but we are powerhouses of heaven on the face of the earth to advance the kingdom against darkness. That when Jesus said, I establish my church upon faith and the gates of hell will not prevail, guess who is the prevailer? You and me. And that East Glenville's purpose within this community is to be an advancer of the kingdom against the darkness that is in this county. And to press light against it every day and in every way in the way that you utilize your gifts for the kingdom of God. And you have been empowered, indwelt, and endued with the Spirit to exercise that which God has gifted you to do. It is God's way of letting you and I know that mere human beings can do impossible things because the king reigns over your life. That you and I can accomplish not mediocrity, but we can accomplish great things for the king, even in things that look mediocre. I haven't seen it lately, but there was a commercial that used to run about a bunch of kids talking. And it was kids being interviewed, and they said, what do, you, what do you want in life? And one of the little kids goes, I strive to be mediocre. They interviewed another kid, and he said, well, it's my, it's my calling just to be enough. And they look at another kid, and they said, what, what about you? And he says, oh, I strive to be average. Cute commercial, sad reality. Is it true about us, the people of God? Is it true, really, that all we strive for is to be fed on Sunday? Is that true about us? To hear an uplifting message? To get our peace of comfort? And then to go on about our worldly business. Oh, how things have flipped from the days of the cross. When people like Polycarp would go before the Roman emperor and say, take my life. I give it joyfully for Christ. I'm happy to die for Christ. Or people like the Apostle Paul who would say, you know what? I make tents so that I can do ministry. I'm not doing ministry to enhance my tent making. Our culture is so caught up with our tent making that we think our worship, that our churches should be teaching us how to be better tent makers. Don't you see the lunacy of that? We will never rebuild Eden here. We will never have enough tents here. 
You and I aren't living for here. We are living for our home that Christ will return and give us. And that is to be our focus. Because Christ sovereignly rules over that kingdom. Of which you and I are members and servants and people. And see, the the apostles here, they don't get it. They're kind of like where we are in verse 6. So when they came together, they asked him, Lord... At this time, will you restore the kingdom of Israel? See where their focus is? It's not on the kingdom of God. It's on their political kingdom. It's on their world. It's on this world. God, when are you going to do things the way we think you should do those things? After all, isn't this all about us? And it's there that you and I recall it's not all about us, right? But it's all about him who is all for us. Look how Jesus gently rebukes. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Get your mind off of what you think the way things should be and put your mind on the way God thinks that they are. Don't look to your own wisdom, but look to the wisdom that comes from the throne of God. Don't run your life by your own agenda, but run it in the agenda that God has established for you to live by daily bread and by faith. That you and I were not to know the future. You and I are not intended to know what the future would be. It's right there in Proverbs, right? Many are the plans of man, but God directs his steps. It doesn't mean that we don't plan. It doesn't mean that we don't strive to know a direction that we're going, but it does mean that we don't hold it so tightly that it interferes with us hearing what God is calling and how God is moving. Because the moment that we hold on to it like Jonah, we forsake the grace that is ours and the sovereign rule of the king over our lives. The moment my way is more important than God's way is the very moment that I move into idolatry. God says the future is mine. And how you will respond in those circumstances will reveal your faithfulness to me. You have to have a kingdom priority in your life. You and I must have kingdom priorities in our life. Not just East Glenville priorities, not just our home priorities. But over and above all things, we must have the priority of the kingdom. Think of the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Those who turn their hand from the plow are not fit for the kingdom. Harsh words. Hard words from Jesus. Let the dead bury their own dead. Come and follow me. Hard words from Jesus but words that are meant to convey a specific point to you and I 
that there is to be no higher priority in our lives than the kingdom of God. Nothing can be more important to us than the king. This is why Paul would say our citizenship is not here on earth, but we are citizens of heaven. I love being an American. I, I am blessed. It is a grace. I have two sons who have fought for this country. I love this country. But the moment my love for this country becomes more important to me than the love for my country and my homeland of heaven, it moves into idolatry. And the more I let this country and this culture rule and reign over my life and the decisions that I make, and the, less I, and the more I turn away from the throne of God and his sovereignty over my life, it moves me deeper and deeper and deeper into idolatry. And I find myself, just like in Genesis, trying to rebuild the Tower of Babel. To say, Lord, it is here that I will stay. It is here that I will make comfortable. It is here that I glorify. It is here that I worship. Not where you're calling me to go. And when I say those things in my heart, I reject the sovereignty of my king over my life. We are to have a kingdom focus. So we have the promise of a kingdom, the promise of God's sovereign reign on that kingdom, but we also have the promise of a returning king. Verses 9 through 11, we are assured, number one, of glorification. And when they had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and he took them. He was taken out of their sight. Jesus was brought up into glory with a body that is like our body. And doing so showed us our destiny along with him. That he would never leave us nor forsake us. And that we, as Paul would say in Thessalonians in the twinkle of eye, will have our bodies transformed into a body like Christ. That our flesh will one day be glorified as well. We won't look in the mirror and go, anymore but we'll look into the celestial eyes of the mirror the celestial mirror of our father's eyes and be astonished at the beauty that he sees in us you see it's your destiny it's my destiny that we be glorified to live with him in glory You are dearly loved people. Kistemacher says this in his commentary that we do have this assurance of glorification, but we also have an advocacy with the Father. That the fact that Jesus goes and sits at the right hand of the Father, he advocates on our behalf eternally so. That he fills in the gaps of our prayers. He constantly shows forth his scars in his body showing our redemption before the throne of heaven. That he continually pours out affection for us, his people. And that also 
He has sovereign reign as He rules next to the Father over all that is seen and unseen. What would your life in the dash look like? What would mine look like if we really lived as subjects of the kingdom? What would we know? Who would we be? Would we be identified by Christ as his subject and redeemed certainly so and forever by his redeeming blood? Three things about living in the dash. Know this. You and I are dearly loved subjects of the kingdom. We are flipping and flopping and stumbling and bumbling people who just can't seem to get it right this side of glory. But the reigning king loves you and I dearly. He doesn't love us because of who we have become. He loves us because of who we are becoming in him. We should change the name from human being to human becoming. You and I haven't reached home yet, but we are constantly being sanctified into the image of what the Son looks like. And because of that, you and I are dearly loved mistake makers. Constantly, as Martin Luther would say, repenting and remembering that Jesus died for me as a sinner so that I might look like him in glory. And that gives us strength to persevere. It gives us strength to be patient. It gives us strength to be kind. It gives us strength to give testimony to the work that the Spirit is doing in our own personal lives for the glory of the kingdom. Secondly, You are called to a higher purpose. You and I are called to a higher purpose. Your life is not about you. My life is not about me. Parents of younger children, I hate to tell you this, you're going to find this out. Your life's not about your kids. They're going to leave you one day. May come back, but they're going to leave you. And they're going to make mistakes, and they're going to blow it. And you're going to find out little Judy and little Johnny need a Savior. And the other thing you're going to find out, you're not their Savior. And you're going to have to tell those kids their life is not about them. They're going to have questions that they're going to ask. What should I do? Who should I be? Where should I go? Don't point them to the world. Don't point them to yourself. Point them to Christ. Take them to the Sermon on the Mount and say, Son, daughter, this is how you are to live. Place your faith in the living King who has an eternal kingdom of which you are a citizen and live like He told you to live. And that will be wise. The world's not all about your job.
Those of you who've had the opportunity to retire, you've got a gold watch, nice pension, and a fond to do. And sometimes you lay awake wondering, what was all that about? Well, if it was all about you, there's not a good answer. But when you realize it was all about him, that he was working, that he was putting me in positions of authority, he was placing me in the context of people and in community so that I might reveal him to those who I work with, then your job takes on real meaning and eternal consequences. Moms and dads, grandparents, when you and I live knowing that we are influencing eternal beings for the kingdom of God and that the priority we give those children is the priority of the kingdom, we will know that we're raising wise children and wise grandchildren. When we teach them, children have no higher priority than the kingdom of God, then you and I will find faithful children. You and I are called to a higher purpose, not this world, but the world to come. And as long as you and I are trying to make this world Eden again, we will live very frustrated lives. But when we are focused on we are living for the kingdom to come, we will live very fruitful and joyful lives. Then last, make it count. Make your time in the dash count. Risk it all for Christ. Don't hold anything back. It's just a mark on a stone unless it's filled with Jesus. People will spend thousands of dollars to say you were a nice person, a hard worker, and a great and faithful husband or wife. But what you and I really want the world to know, they were servants of the living king, and they still live, and they still serve the king, and they will be with him forever and ever and ever again. Because they made it count in the dash for living for him and him alone. It sounds counterintuitive, I know, but if you and I will do that, we will love our spouses better. We'll love them more completely. We'll be better workers. We'll actually enjoy our jobs. We'll be better parents. It'll be such a relief to know we're not our kids' saviors any longer. But we can point them to Jesus, their Savior, and we can enjoy those little beings in our home. Every element of our life will become more peaceful, more kind, more gentle. Because we are making it count for Christ. To the King be glory forever and ever Amen. Let's pray.